turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. <coughs> Let us read uh, these verses together as we begin the sermon this Lord's Day. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. A faithful witness, dear ones, is one who bears testimony to the truth. Whether in a court of law, whether at work, whether at school, or in the home, or any other place. A faithful witness looks at all of life, wherever he may find himself, as if he were in a courtroom, so that by his words and by his deeds, he points people to the truth and to the God of truth who is revealed in Holy Scripture. What does our speech before our children or before our spouses or before our our parents or before our friends reveal about us as being faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. It's important that we realize, dear ones, that a faithful testimony is not necessarily a long and articulate discourse before others concerning the truth. It may be simply a yes or a no in certain circumstances. It is a faithful testimony, dear ones, not in terms of how long it is or how profound it is, but in terms of how agreeable to the Scripture it is. You do not need a degree in theology to be a faithful witness. You simply need a faith in Jesus Christ alone and in His righteousness and a love for the truth of Jesus Christ. You may be a child. You may be a busy mother or a hard-working father. But yet the Lord calls you and all Christians to be His witnesses. Dear ones, this is not an optional calling to a Christian. The Lord does not merely suggest or wish that you who trust in Christ be His witnesses. It is your duty 
It is your duty to be his witnesses. And not a, a duty of mere obligation, but also a duty of love to Christ for all that he has sacrificed and purchased for you. In Isaiah chapter 43, hear the word of the Lord as to our calling to be the witnesses of the Lord our God. Isaiah 43, beginning with verse 10. The Lord says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed, when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. And so the Lord, even as he called his people in the Old Testament scriptures to be his witness, so we are called likewise, especially now that God has revealed the greatness, the mercy, the power of his salvation in such a tangible way and bringing salvation to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, how much more we are called to be his witnesses in light of all that we have beheld and all that we have witnessed and all that we have received from Christ. Well, this Lord's Day we shall see Christ as the faithful and true witness in whose path we are to walk as he testified before Pilate. Let us consider the following main points from our text today. First of all, the Sanhedrin changed their accusation against Christ. In Mark 15, 1, and we will, in conjunction with that, look at a few other parallel accounts. The second main point, Christ gives a good confession before Pilate. Mark 15, 2, and again we'll look at Another parallel account. And thirdly, Christ will not answer the chief priests. In Mark 15, verses 3 through 5. Our first main point then, the Sanhedrin changed their accusation against Christ. I read for you Mark 15, 1. At this time, and straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. As we consider, dear ones, the text before us this Lord's Day, the Lord Jesus has been falsely charged by the Jewish Sanhedrin with having uttered blasphemy in identifying himself as the Son of God as we saw last week from Luke chapter 22, verses 70 and 71. That was the last of the three Jewish trials 
that Christ endured as he suffered in the place of sinners. The Jewish phase of trial now having been ended, Christ moves into the Roman phase of trial where he will first appear before Pilate and then Herod and then finally before Pilate again. He will then be taken out after that to be crucified as if he were a murderer, as if he were some criminal deserving of the death penalty. Mark 15.1 takes us from the last Jewish trial before the Sanhedrin to the first Roman trial before Pilate. One can imagine at this time of the morning we had said that the last Jewish trial probably occurred somewhere between 5 and 6 a.m. Now, perhaps after the Jewish trial, somewhere between 6 and 7 a.m., Jesus is led through the streets of Jerusalem from the palace of the high priest to the judgment hall of Pilate. Shamefully led, as if he were a criminal, led by, by the officers of the temple, led by the Sanhedrin, bound, fettered, his face no doubt bloodied from the blows that he had received, carried out as one who was guilty of some heinous crime. Here Jesus is to stand before the Roman procurator, Pilate. Who was Pontius Pilate? Well, we know little about Pontius Pilate before being appointed procurator by Tiberius Caesar in 26 AD, which was the same year, incidentally, that the Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry, where he was baptized by John the Baptist. Pilate's jurisdiction included the provinces of Judea, in which was Jerusalem, and Samaria. His ordinary office, however, was not in Jerusalem. That's not where his headquarters were located, but rather in Caesarea, a city along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Pilate happened to be in Jerusalem at this particular period of time due to the Passover. Knowing the influx of people that would be in Jerusalem, a million or more people that would crowd into the city of Jerusalem, Pilate wanted to be on the scene, as it were, to be able to personally uh, handle any problems that came up. Because when there were problems for a procurator or governor of Rome, it made its way to the emperor. And the emperor could certainly dismiss a man immediately if he did not like the way he had handled the situation. So there was that accountability on the part of the procurator. He wasn't to go in to a situation and try and make as much trouble as he could possibly make. That did not help the Roman emperor at all. The Roman emperor wanted to see things settled in as peaceable of a way as possible.
Nevertheless, Pilate was not popular with the Jews at all, and that's putting it mildly. Josephus, the Jewish historian, relates one incident, which is just one example of many others, in which Pilate outraged the Jews. Pilate sent soldiers from Caesarea into Jerusalem, carrying their military standards, those standards upon a pole, upon which were found emblems of emperor worship. In fact, the Romans would offer sacrifices to this Roman standard. They would worship this Roman standard as symbolic of Caesar himself. The Jews resisted these idolatrous standards of Caesar as they came to the holy city of Jerusalem. And when Pilate threatened them with death, they indicated on their part that they were willing to die. And they laid themselves down by the multitudes, basically laying their necks down for Pilate to execute them. But they would not cease resisting from this particular abomination that had been brought to Jerusalem. Pilate, totally embarrassed now by the Jews, because he knew if he simply slaughtered these people, what would Caesar say? He relents. He yields. He submits to the, to the Jewish uh, demand that he remove these standards from Jerusalem. In like manner, we see in Luke 13.1 a biblical example. And there, we don't know the background to this, but there is related some murderous attack by Pilate upon certain Galileans who were uh, killed apparently in the temple itself while they offered their sacrifices to God. There it speaks of how Pilate mingled the blood of these Galileans with their sacrifices. Needless to say, Pilate was not loved or appreciated by the Jews in the least. The picture painted of Pilate by the Gospel writers is that of a man who would compromise truth for the sake of his own personal gain. You remember he asked cynically and skeptically, what is truth? In John 18.38, And who would sacrifice, that is, he himself would sacrifice human life even when he knew it was innocent blood that was to be shed, as in the very case of Christ. Pilate could have prevented the torture endured by Christ both before and after, or before and during the crucifixion. But he did not do so because it was not expedient to do so. Pilate thought he could remove the guilt of his sin by means of his mere words and some outward action of washing his hands, thus diverting all responsibility for Christ's crucifixion from himself and to the Jews. It may certainly be true that the Jewish leaders were more responsible in one sense because they wanted to see Christ die a humiliating death. However, Pilate could have stopped it, but he did not do so. 
he thus became partaker in their sins. Dear ones, there is always the temptation to compromise what we know to be the truth in order to hold on to our reputation or our status or our job. However, nothing in this world is worth sacrificing the truth for or sacrificing a faithful witness and testimony for. How much better to lose our reputation before ungodly men if it means gaining our reputation before a holy God. Our name, dear ones, is only as good as the truth for which it stands. If our name in this life is dragged through the mud for the cause of Christ, we will shine forth free of all mud and of all stain, of all filth and of all dirt for all eternity. And those who drag our names through the mud in this life will only be the means which God uses to make his cause for which we suffer known throughout the whole world. They actually become a means of promoting the cause of Christ, not diminishing the cause of Christ. Again, if we would fill out the account of these trials, we must consider what the other gospel accounts tell us as well. I'd ask that you look with me at this time at John chapter 18, verse 28, where we read the following. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. <clears throat> the members of the Sanhedrin that led Christ to Pilate would only go as far as the outer walls of the judgment hall of an idolater like Pilate. For to go any further and into the actual judgment hall, the actual house itself, in their judgment, would be to defile themselves so that they could not eat the Passover lamb. What specifically would have defiled these religious leaders, we are not told. Whether it was the fact that he was an idolater, or perhaps it was the leaven that would have been found in the royal residence of Pilate. For all leaven, you'll recall, was to be excluded from all homes during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which continued for seven days after the Passover, according to Exodus 13.7. Furthermore, we are led to ask the question, wasn't the Passover celebrated the night before in Jerusalem by Christ and his disciples? Would it not have been celebrated by everyone else at the same time that Christ and his disciples celebrated the Passover? Well, yes, I would affirm that that's the case. Then how were these religious leaders to eat 
the Passover lamb the day after the Passover. <coughs> well, there have been many su- suggested solutions to this question, which I cannot go into all of those that have been suggested at this time. Some simply say that there is a real contradiction here. Those obviously who do not adopt or accept the inspiration of Scripture. There's just a contradiction. John disagrees with with Mark and with Luke and with Matthew on that point. That's obviously not an option uh, to those of us who accept the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of God's Word, the infallibility of God's Word. I would suggest that the simplest and the most faithful solution is to suggest that these religious leaders made an exception for themselves to the rule. Because they could not celebrate the Passover the night before when it should have been observed due to making arrangements with Judas to arrest Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, they did so the following day. Some have suggested that it was not the Passover lamb which they would have defiled themselves from being able to eat, but rather a sacrificial meal on the following day after the Passover, which they say, those who adopt this position say, would have been viewed in a general sense as being part of the Passover feast. However, the word or the phrase to eat The Passover, as we find here, is used several other times in the New Testament. And it is only ever used in Scripture of eating the Passover lamb and not another feast or another meal associated thereafter. Thus, here it would seem we have a popish view of church authority wherein these leaders believe they can make exceptions to the law of God upon their own mere authority. I would submit that any time ministers or elders add to or take away from the ordinances appointed by Christ, they exemplify the same pontifical authority herein exhibited by these men, exhibited by these Sadducees, by these Pharisees, by the Sanhedrin. As when today uninspired hymns are used in worship. As when the Jewish appeal to instruments, the Romish appeal to instruments is brought back into the pure worship of God once having been been abolished. That ceremonial law having once been abolished, it is brought in again or the appeal made to celebrating new holy days that are not found in the Word of God, such as Christmas or Easter, or many other things that are brought into by the mere authority of men without the authority expressly given by God. They exercise a similar authority that was practiced by the Sanhedrin here. The law of God, dear ones, did allow that a second Passover might be celebrated a month later 
for all those who were defiled and unable to come to the appointed Passover. In Numbers chapter 9, verses 6 through 14. But no such second Passover was ever permitted the following day after the appointed Passover. Not only do we see here a pontifical view of authority when it comes to the ordinances of God, but we also see such a conspicuous case of hypocrisy as well. For these members of the Sanhedrin are concerned about some ceremonial defilement in entering the judgment hall of Pilate while falsely accusing, lying, and determining to destroy the sinless Son of God. They strain out a net and swallow a camel. They will seek to prevent a ceremonial defilement but yet conspire to murder the innocent Lamb of God. As I have said before, take heed, dear ones. Take heed when we practice hypocrisy. In going through the mere outward motions of our faith, of our worship, of our religion, of obedience to God, for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, dear ones, will lead to self-deception so that one becomes insensitive to the inner working of God's Spirit in convicting us of our sin and wherein we even come to believe that sin is righteousness and error is truth. As we find in the case of that man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. verses 9 through 12, where it says and speaks of him, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Beware, dear ones, that we not practice an insincere faith, that we not go through the motions of our faith. For it will lead to self-deception where we will believe a lie. According to John 18, verse 29, Pilate goes out then to the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin and appropriately asks them what accusation they bring against Christ. This was the right thing to do. He wanted to find out what is what is it that you have against this man? Why have you brought him to me? What is he charged with having committed? Now, as we look at Luke 23, verse 2, we find out what it was that they charged Christ with. 
I'll begin with verse 1. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. <clears throat> As we look there and read those charges in Luke 23.2, we curiously find the accusation against Christ has shifted from that of blasphemy in calling himself the Son of God to that of treason in setting himself up as a rival political king to Caesar. We will say more about Christ and Caesar under the next main point, but for now, let it simply be noted how the charge becomes conveniently changed from blasphemy to treason at the whim of these unscrupulous and wicked leaders. These men have no real desire at all to do what is right. They only have a goal to see Christ put to death and they will do whatever they have to do in order to see that goal realized. (coughs) Dear ones, Christ was condemned first for blasphemy, a violation of the first commandment, a violation of the first table commandments, and then second, Christ was condemned for treason, a violation of the fifth commandment, or violation of the second table commandments. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered on behalf of sinners who were guilty of violating both tables of the law. And he therefore endured the unjust charges and condemnation against him for having violated both tables of the law. Thus we see in the very accusations brought against him how the transgression of guilty sinners like you and me were laid to the charge of the Lord Jesus Christ who was the Passover lamb. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And having Christ's righteousness imputed to us by faith alone. Dear Christian, does not your heart ache that it was your sin that he was bearing and being treated in such a contemptible manner? How can you obstinately continue to sin against such a loving Savior who was willing to endure the unjust charges that were brought against him. And yet, dear Christian, does not your heart rejoice that it was your sin that he was bearing? How can you forget the mercy of Christ shown to you by being merciless to one another? Even as you have received mercy, show mercy. As you have freely received, so freely give. Our second main point is this. Christ gives a good confession before Pilate. Look with me again at Mark 15, 2. 
And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. After having obtained the accusation against Christ from the Jewish Sanhedrin, Pilate then goes back into the judgment hall to question Christ. At that time, Pilate asks Christ, Art thou the king of the Jews? To which Christ responds, Thou sayest it. Or in other words, it is as you have said. Christ did not deny that he was the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the King of Israel, but rather faithfully and boldly testified a good confession before Pilate. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, this very thing is noted by the Apostle Paul. When he says, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Because Christ witnessed a good confession, Paul calls us to be faithful and witness a good confession as well. Christ's testimony before Pilate, dear ones, was the last step in sealing the death of Christ for undeserving sinners. His silence, once again, would have given no testimony upon which Pilate could have condemned him. However, Christ bore a faithful testimony knowing that it would mean his torture, it would mean his humiliation, it would mean his agony, it would mean his crucifixion and his death. But he bore a good confession before Pilate in order that the just might die for the unjust and the godly for the ungodly so that we might be accepted as righteous and made the very bride of Christ. Dear ones, how are you bearing a faithful witness to Christ? There's many ways in which we will be called to bear a faithful witness to Christ. Yes, we may be called to bear a faithful witness to Christ before the civil magistrate. Even in these times, if you're called to jury duty, you may be called to bear faithful witness to Christ. That you cannot serve on a jury wherein you must take an oath to uphold the constitution of a state or a constitution of the nation as being the supreme law by which you will rule. No Christian should take such an oath. The only rule that we can rule by make decisions according to is the word of God in such situations. And so you may be called to give a faithful testimony before the civil magistrate in such a situation. At this time, as I said, we do not have to undergo persecution, but the apostles certainly did. And they gave a faithful testimony before the civil magistrate. Christians, even now in various parts of the world, may and do appear before the civil magistrates to give a faithful testimony and confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. Many suffer imprisonment. Many suffer extreme fines that put such huge burdens upon their families that they go into extreme poverty and cannot eat, 
cannot feed their children. Many suffer death itself because they give a faithful confession to, to Jesus Christ before the civil magistrate. Many times we're called to give a faithful confession before our friends. As I said earlier, it may simply be a yes or a no, but at other times it may be more of an explanation of our faith in Christ. Parents, you really are doing so. And we all make testimony and give witness one way or the other, whether it's a good witness or a poor witness, a truthful and faithful witness, or an unlawful and sinful witness every single day. We are bearing testimony and we are giving witness whether we intend to or not every single day. The only question is, what kind of a witness are we giving? What type of a testimony are we bearing for Jesus Christ? By our testimony, are we saying we are identified with Jesus Christ or we don't know the man? Parents, you are doing so daily before your children by your patience or impatience, by your encouragement or your discouragement of them, by your loving discipline or by your avengeful wrath, by your sincerity or by your hypocrisy, by your willingness to suffer for Christ or your being ashamed to suffer for Christ, by your repenting of your sins to your children or by holding them in or going through some mere superficial facade by your seeking their forgiveness or passing over it when you sin against them, by giving them the gospel of Christ or saying nothing about their need of a Savior. You're giving a witness. You're confessing Christ or you're not confessing Christ. You are giving a confession Every single day, parents, before your children. Children, listen to me now. Children, you are giving a testimony and a witness every day as well. You are saying by your words and by your actions what you think about Jesus Christ every day. You do so by your cheerful obedience to your parents or you do so by your reluctant obedience or by saying, I won't obey. You are giving testimony to Christ as to whether you're identified with Christ or not by your willingness to make peace in the family or, on the other hand, to make trouble in the family. By your willingness to get along with your brothers or your sisters. Or rather by your willingness to, to stir up as much trouble as you can. You're giving testimony, children, by your respectful speech to your parents or your disrespectful speech to 
to your parents. By your receiving their loving reproof or completely disregarding it and saying, I don't want you to correct me. I don't want you to say anything against what I do. You're giving a testimony and bearing witness by your taking and embracing Christ not only as the Savior of your parents, but as your own Savior. Placing your own faith in Jesus Christ. Dear ones, if we are ashamed to let people know that we are Christians and committed to Jesus Christ, as our only hope of eternal salvation when the opportunity presents itself to us, we are a testimony, but not a good testimony for Christ. For all men will be witnesses for something or for someone. The only question is, who will you be a witness for in your life? Will you be known as being a witness for the latest rock star, movie star, sports star, health guru, financial wizard, or political leader, because these are the only individuals that they ever hear you speak of or read about? Or will you be known by others as a witness for Jesus Christ because He is upon your lips when the opportunity presents itself and because He has graciously given you His righteousness and forgiveness and everlasting life. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. You are a witness, dear ones. What kind of a witness are you? Again, as we turn to John's Gospel, chapter 18, let us read a more full account of Christ's good confession before Pilate as we see it in verses 33 through 37. Let me read for you those words. This is the more complete and full confession which Christ gave to Pilate. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself? Or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth Heareth my voice. (coughs) 
Christ was accused by the Sanhedrin before Pilate of treason in setting himself as a rival king to Caesar. Here Christ gives a good confession before Pilate in responding to the accusations that were brought against him. Now, in one sense, Christ was indeed established as a king over Caesar, while in another sense, he was not so established over Caesar. In the first sense, let us consider, where Caesar took the prerogatives of God upon himself in seeking the worship of his subjects, certainly in that respect, Christ, the Son of God, and as the prince of the kings of the earth, was to be supreme over all magistrates. For all civil magistrates, whether Jewish or Gentile, are called to kiss the Son of God and honor Him in their official capacities. In that sense, Christ has no actual rivals. For all authority in heaven and in earth has been granted to Him to bring all nations, not just peoples from all nations, but all nations as geopolitical entities unto himself in fulfillment of Psalm 2, verses 8 through 12, and many other passages in the Psalms and the prophets, and in fulfillment, the passage here in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to go into all the world, disciple not all people from all nations, but disciple all nations. However, in another sense, Christ did not come as a political ruler to reign from a throne in Jerusalem as a rival king to Caesar. In fact, in John 6.15, when the people desired to make Christ such a political king, he immediately departed from them because he did not come as such a king. The Lord Jesus testifies that he is a king and that he has a kingdom over which he rules here in John 18, but that it is not a political kingdom. Otherwise, all his servants would have risen up together <clears throat> to militarily deliver Christ from the Jews. <clears throat> the fact that neither the Jews nor the Romans had encountered any military attempts by Christ's followers to rescue him except for the lone attempt of Peter there in the Garden of Gethsemane, which Christ himself condemned, proves that Christ's kingdom is not a political kingdom of this world. Well, then what kind of a kingdom is it? Let me suggest two things very quickly. First of all, it is a kingdom of grace, wherein Christ subdues sin, the miseries of this life, Satan, death, and hell by becoming a curse for wretched sinners chosen from all eternity. Christ became that which was a curse before God and before man, so that the curse of God's law, which justly condemned us, might be forever lifted from off of our shoulders, from the shoulders of all who will put their faith and trust alone in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of Christ, dear ones, is of grace from beginning and unto the end. Why would anyone who hears of such a kingdom of grace want to live under a kingdom of works 
where we must seek to find approval and acceptance before God on the basis of our own works of righteousness. The scripture teaches that all are doomed to death and damnation who would seek to establish their righteousness before God on the basis of their own works. is not only a kingdom of grace, but is a kingdom of power. For in Christ, and by Christ, we will see all God's enemies brought into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. What king that you know can altogether eliminate sin? Can altogether eliminate the miseries of this life? Can altogether eliminate tears? And Satan and death, and hell. Do you know of any other king that can do that? Christ can. And he shall powerfully bring it to pass. It has, in principle, already been accomplished. He shall bring it to pass on that final day. He demonstrated that he could do so and would do so by his own glorious resurrection. Dear ones, that empty tomb demonstrates once and for all the downfall of Christ's enemies. And I ask you, do you want to be, do you want to be in the loving hands of such a king or under the almighty foot of such a king? For all people will find themselves in one place or the other, in his loving hands or under his almighty vengeful foot. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Finally, note under this second main point, Pilate's response to Christ's good confession in John eighteen thirty-eight. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Very cynically. Tells you his concept of truth, of righteousness, that it was something very wishy-washy something that could be compromised. What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews. So now he leaves from having um, interrogated Christ, sought an explanation from Christ. He goes back outside where the Jews are because they can't come inside the building because they say they would be defiled. He goes back out to the Jews and probably brings Christ with him, as we shall see at the same time. But then he says to the Jews, <clears throat> I find in him no fault at all. This is the testimony and witness, again, of a pagan ruler. Not one of a Christian. Last week, Judas, who betrayed the Lord, tells these same Jewish leaders that he himself has sinned in betraying innocent blood. This week, Pilate tells these same Jewish leaders that Christ is innocent of any crime. Again, the Holy Spirit has given us this information to assure us that Christ was not condemned as a criminal and cursed by God for any sin that he himself had committed, but rather he voluntarily suffered as a surety. He stood in our place and bore the debt of guilt and sin and condemnation that we deserved. But it shows again the blindness of these men 
the testimony of Judas didn't phase them. Now the testimony of, of Pilate himself doesn't phase them. The third and final point is this. Christ will not answer the chief priests. Go back, if you will, to Mark chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. And there we read, And the chief priests accused him of many things. That is, accused Christ of many things. So this is, as I said, Pilate, this final time, has probably brought Christ back out with himself in front of the Sanhedrin, and they begin lashing out at Christ, accusing Christ there in the presence of Pilate outside the judgment hall. The scripture goes on to say, but he answered nothing. That is, Christ answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. (coughs) When Pilate gave his verdict that Jesus was innocent, the Jewish leaders began to rail against Christ with accusations, but Christ said nothing to these leaders. He attempted in no way to defend himself at all against their accusations. Pilate even implored Christ to defend himself, but Christ remained silent. Why? First of all, Christ had already borne testimony to the Jewish leaders and they had condemned him for uttering blasphemy when he sought to simply answer the question who he was. And they condemned him for blasphemy. He said he was the Son of God. These Jewish leaders had already rejected his testimony as to the truth. Why should he say any more that they might reject? They had chosen already to believe a lie. They would receive no further light of having rejected having rejected the light that they had already been given. But a dangerous position, dear ones, to be in. To be in darkness because the light has been rejected. These were men instructed in the Scriptures. These were not rank pagans. And here is the testimony to us all who are within the visible church. We can know the light only as we walk in the light. Otherwise, if we don't walk in the light, what light we have will become darkness to us. The importance of not rejecting the light that God gives to us, as did these men. In conclusion, dear ones, never was there one so willing to be condemned as guilty for other men's sins. For Christ loved our justification more than he loved his own reputation. Christ loved our justification more than he loved his own reputation. If that doesn't humble you, dear ones, in the sight of God, the love of Christ for guilty, undeserving sinners, I don't know what will. No wonder Pilate marveled at his silence as he stood there like a rock, certain, confident, secure, as the accusations were flying all about him. 
No wonder that we too should stand in utter amazement as we behold Christ's silence. For his silence was for you. But place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let us stand in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.